So the passage today is Judges 4, 12 to 24. When they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abram, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera summoned from Harasheth of Hagoyim to the Kishon River all his men and his 900 chariots fitted with iron. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor and 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword, and Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harasheth Agoyim, and all Syria's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, wife of Heber the Kenite, because there was an alliance between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the family Heber the Kenite. Jael went to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If anyone comes by and asks you, is anyone there, say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him as he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground and he died. Just then, Barak came in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you are looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple, dead. On that day, God subdued Jabin the king of Canaan before the Israelites. And the hands of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. Well, it uh, looks like you're all sitting there in a bit of a stunned silence. Um, and quite, quite understandably, I mean, what is going on in this chapter? You know, what's that doing in the Bible? How about that ending, you know, with Jael? You know, oh, come in, Sisera, come in, you'll be safe. Here, lie here on this mat, get comfy. Oh, you're a warm blanket? Oh, some nice warm milk to, you know, just, just you rest. And wham, you know, tent peg through the temple. You think, what is going on? Uh, this uh, feels like a, uh, rather a comic strip, a Marvel comic strip rather than a Bible. You know, we, we, we come to this thinking, uh, okay, Bible open. We've got a holy text, God's word in front of us. We want to learn. We want to be edified. We want to grow. And this is what you get. Um, it makes you ask, when we read passages like this, what on earth do you do with a Bible passage like this? Uh, how, do you, how do you handle it? Um, uh, I mean, some weeks uh, when I come to preach, when I come to read the passage, I think, okay, pretty obvious today, uh, pretty, pretty good. I think I can work with this. Love others, be generous, tell others about Jesus. Yep, 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 that seems pretty straightforward. Um, and then... 
then this passage, you know, what, how do you even come up with a title? Is this, you know, top tips for defending yourself with unorthodox weddings, uh, weapons, or, um, or maybe a what not to do when camping with friends? Um, I actually heard one, one preacher uh, suggest the title, what to do when he snores. Um, <laughs> so you think, well, you know, what's going on here? Um, now, we didn't go with any of those, as you can see. But as you can imagine, I spent lots of time this week reading, studying, um, thinking, praying, uh, what, what God have you got for us from this account? Now, there is a danger zone when we come to passages like this, really any passage from the Bible, um, but especially passages from the Old Testament, which are distant from us not only in time, but also culture. And there's a danger that we'll just pull out what we want. You know, we'll say, okay, well, what is this saying to me straight away? Uh, jump straight to us. Um, well, today what we're going to do is we're actually going to step through the process of how do we take on an Old Testament passage like this? How do we faithfully get out of it, uh, what God's saying to us, rather than just reading into it what I want it to say? Um, so to do that, first of all, we're going to take a closer look at this passage. Uh, and we'll see what it actually teaches us. We'll pull out some of the details. And then we'll step through a three-part process for interpreting the Old Testament. This is basically what I do when I'm uh, reading the Bible or when I'm preparing a sermon. It's something that any of us can do. Um, so the first thing is to ask, well, what would this have meant for the original audience? Uh, and then we can say, well, how do we see this through Jesus? And finally, then you get to the point where you can say, well, what does this mean for me? How, how do I interpret this and apply this to my life? Uh, now, as usual, we will have a question time after the sermon, a bit nervous with a passage like this, but uh, save up your questions or text them into the, uh, the same number we use every week. Um, there it is on the screen. Um, but I'm going to pray as we jump into this passage. So please join me. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you do guide us and teach us and reveal yourself to us. Uh, and we pray today as we uh, look at Judges 4, uh, that you'll be speaking to us, you'll be making this clear to us. Uh, please use me to speak clearly and faithfully, uh, and please help us all to have hope, open hearts and minds, uh, and that you'll, yeah, work by your living word today, and we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first of all, let's take a, a bit of a closer look uh, at this passage uh, and see what it actually is teaching us. Now, again, this isn't my full process, I'm not going to take you through days of work, um, just the highlights of, of what we might do when we attack a passage like this. Uh, but the first thing to notice is, is there's nothing mystical going on and pretty well everything we need is actually find, found in the Bible. Uh, sometimes when you're opening the Bible you can think, oh, I need an archaeology or an ancient history degree to understand. I need some other interpretive structure to understand this. Uh, but that's not the case. Uh, sometimes archaeology or history accounts outside of the Bible will back up what we find in the Bible or make something a little bit more clear. Uh, but for the most part, part, the Bible interprets the Bible. Everything you've got's there, all the details there, we just need to do the work to find it. Um, so it's not, it's not hard, it's not difficult, but it does take a bit of work. Um, so we're going to work through it, uh, make some observations. We'll pick it up there in verse 1. We didn't read this bit. So this is just before the Bible reading that Kristen gave to us. Uh, so we've just finished uh, our previous cycle, our previous story. Uh, God saved his people. They've had peace for a number of years. That judge has died. That's the cycle of judges. And then again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now that Ehud, the previous judge, was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, 
who reigned in Hazor. Uh, Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Harasheth, Hagayim, uh, because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried out to the Lord for help. Now, Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at the time. She held court under the palm of Deborah near Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Aboam, uh, from Kadesh in Naphtali and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go, take 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his char chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, Well, if you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly I'll go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course you are taking, the honour will not be yours. For the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. And there Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali. And 10,000 men went up under his command. And Deborah also went up with him. Okay, so that's the beginning of our chapter. Uh, how do we work at noticing things? How do you work at pulling out details that you might have missed? Uh, well, the first thing that's good to do is to ask some questions. Uh, so if you've bought one of those little uh, judges books, I really like those journaling Bibles, that's a great thing. Read it and just write down the questions. Uh, you might want to use a pencil or a pacer so you can rub them out or you might want to do it in pen and just fill out the answers. But write the questions that pop into your head as you read this. You know, what questions come up? Here's some questions that um, came up for me. I, I went, well, how does this fit into Judges? How does this story fit into the bigger picture? Uh, what's going on with culture in this passage, particularly women? Because it seems like there's something going on in this passage, culturally. Uh, another question for me is names and locations. Did you have that one? Who's who? Where are they from? I don't quite understand it. Uh, just a lots of long names that are a bit foreign to me. Uh, and then, what actually happened in the ba battle? You know, how, do, how does the, this mighty warrior who's been oppressing the Israel for 20 years all of a sudden just get defeated? So, so, what, so they're the questions that I sort of wrote down and went, okay, how will we go about answering these? Well, first of all, we can find it in this passage. Uh, first of all, how does it fit in? And this is just the question of context. So it's how does this passage, this chapter, how does it fit into what's before and after it? And this is something we must always do when we read the Bible if we want to avoid taking something out of context. Uh, one of my, I guess, little peeves, sorry if you've got one, are those uh, calendars that have like a, a Bible verse and a sunset or an ocean and the Bible verse is just out of context. It's like, you know, be strong, you know, God is with you and you think, oh, that could mean anything. You've got to know where it came from. I, I need to know the history. I need to know the verses before and after it. I need to know who this promise was that God was giving it to. That's what context is all about. Um, so where does this fit? Well, it fits into that cycle of judges that we've seen over the last few weeks. Uh, this cycle, well, it's really a, a um, spiral that gets worse and worse as you go through the book. Um, that God's people forget him, they sin, they start worshipping other gods. Uh, God gets their attention uh, by, by really by oppressing them, by sending someone in to oppress them. Uh, not as punishment but to get their attention. Uh, I think I said last week, like a, a, a parent shouting at their child who's running towards the traffic. You know, you go, okay, I, this, this, I'm not shouting at you for punishment, I'm getting your attention. It might make you cry, but it will make you stop. Uh, and that's, that's, that's sort of what happens. 
Um, so they're oppressed, they cry out, God gets their attention in his distress, God delivers them, there's a time of peace, and then as soon as that judge dies, they're back into sin again. So that's the context, that's where this fits in. And, and we don't need anything special to see that, you've just got to read the book of Judges. Uh, the next question, which is maybe a little bit tricky, uh, is culture. Uh, what's going on culturally, particularly with the role of women in this society? Um, now, we're in a culture where uh, women can do a whole bunch of stuff that culturally they couldn't do 50 years ago or 100 years ago. Uh, in our culture, there's still an overt celebration for women in leadership. So uh, the New Zealand pre uh, Prime Minister, you know, she, she gets a lot of headlines saying, oh, look what she can do. Isn't it a great that a woman's in that kind of role? Uh, and that happens, that has to be said, because it's new, because it's a bit different. So still in our culture, there's that, wow, isn't that different? Isn't that unusual? It's kind of celebrated. And it certainly was even more unusual for a woman uh, to be in control, in leadership in that, in that era. Uh, and we see this, it's a big surprise, uh, with Deborah, who's, um, uh, who's, who's leading in Israel. And we can see that even within this passage, that it's surprising that a woman would be leading or saving the people uh, because of the kind of things even Deborah says. So you might have noticed it there in verse 9 as we're reading when Barak was being a bit of a chicken, and she's like, okay, because you won't do this the right way, because of the way you're going about it, because you're not trusting God, you won't get the credit for this victory. Instead, she doesn't say, uh, she doesn't say, oh, the credit will go to someone else. No, no, the credit will go oh, to a woman. How, how shameful, Barak. You won't get the credit. A woman will get the credit. These are, these are Deborah's words, not mine. That's what she's saying. And later on in Judges, it's kind of reinforced when... Uh, Abimelech, uh, he's fighting a great battle and he's by a city and a lady drops a rock on him and he can tell that he's dying um, and he thinks, oh, this is going to be really... Well, look what he says, I'll say. Hurriedly, uh, he called to his armour bearer, draw your sword and kill me so that they can't say a woman killed him. So his servant ran him through and he died. Now, just as a little cultural... And this is from Judges. You don't need to go read other books about culture in ancient Israel or what was going on in Judges, this is in the book. That was how shameful it was that your, you know, your gravestone would be Abimelech, killed by a woman. No, no, you don't want that. Better, better to say run through by his armour bearer uh, than to say you were killed by a woman. So that's just cultural what's going on. It is surprising, it's shocking that a woman would be leaving, leading and saving Israel at this time. Uh, and it would have been kind of shameful for Israel the other nations would have bagged them out. Oh, you're one of those Israelites. Hey, don't you have a woman as your judge? Oh, like, well, who would belong to Israel? That's kind of what would be going on. Uh, Barak, who we found, he's probably a more natural choice as a saviour, you know, this big, strong, manly war leader. But instead, by contrast, we see Barak, he's not strong and brave and confident in the Lord. He's unsure. He's not confident. He wants that security of Deborah with him. Um, so that's the first couple of questions. The, how does this fit in? What's going on with culture? What about those names and locations? Uh, now, it might seem obvious to you, and I, great if it is, but the first thing is get, get a map. Uh, if you've got a Bible that's got some study notes, almost certainly you've got some maps in the back of it, and they're really helpful. And if you don't have one of those, you've probably got a phone in your pocket with Google on it or a computer at home. Just Google it, you know, map of Israel, Judges chapter 4. Bam! That's what I did to get this one. And I went through and found the, the clearest one. Uh, and maps really help us to go, ah, okay, that's where that is, that's where that is. So we'll run through this and I'll sort of show you where it's going to fit. 
Uh, first of all, it's good to notice that the book of Judges, that one judge isn't saving the whole of Israel. That none of the judges are recorded as being over all 12 tribes. They seem to be more localised. They're saving either one tribe or a few tribes. Um, so that's usually what's happening. And so for this chunk of judges, it's sort of up to the north of Israel, uh, the top half. Uh, it's localised in that north. And so first I'll introduce the bad guys. Uh, first of all, King Jabin, he's the king at Hazor, so you can see it's up there. Um, now, if you see those two sort of circles just to the right of Hazor, the bigger one is the Sea of Galilee. And so if you're familiar with the New Testament, lots of goes on around the Sea of Galilee, that's what's going on there. But Hazor's around there, that's where the king of the Canaanites, King Jabin, he's based there. Now he's got a warlord, he's got someone who controls his army, Sisera, and he's based a little bit further down at Harasheth Haggaiim. Um, so that's the bad guys, and it's really significant, it's, it's emphasised uh, what Sisera's main weapons are. It's these uh, chariots fitted with iron. Um, so really, just, just picture the tanks. You've got an army of infantry, you've got an army of foot soldiers, and the other guys have tanks. Um, so chariots fitted with iron, they almost certainly would have been some sort of spikes or spears built into the horses' harnesses, sticking out of the chariots. Uh, so kind of that, that gladiator-style chariot who's going to go in and just decimate. So that's, that's the emotion you're meant to get as you read that uh, Sisera have these chariots fitted with iron. You're like, oh man, we don't want to face that army. So that's what's going on with the bad guys. Uh, Deborah's a bit further down. So oh, sorry, the chariots, they're based at Harasheth. Uh, Deborah's a little bit further down. Uh, she's between Bethel and Ramah. Uh, and that's where the palm of Deborah, named after her, was. Uh, and she's got her war, war leader, or the guy she's going to turn to, Barak, and he's based way up near Hazor. So you can see it there, Kadesh, at the bottom of that circle. Uh, and he raises his army, the 10,000, from those two tribes, uh, the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, who are based between uh, the nasty king and his warlord. So these are the two tribes who are probably most oppressed by Sisera uh, and his army. Um, so that's, that's who are going, up, going on. Uh, that's, that's what's happening. But what actually happened in this battle? You know, and, and this is what Kristen read for us. And we'll just follow it through on the map. You know, what happened in this battle? Well, first of all, we see that God had already told Deborah that he would lure Sisera to the Kishon River. Um, so you can see it uh, along there. Sorry, the Kishon River uh, comes down. And he says, okay, lure I will lure the army with all their chariots down to that area uh, and that's where I'll deliver them. So that's where Barak and Deborah, because Barak wouldn't go on his own, that's where they go. They, they base themselves at Mount Tabor. Um, now, if you read the next chapter, and we'll, we won't really deal with that today, but chapter 5 is a song that tells you the account of what happened in chapter 4. Uh, and there's some extra details in there, so I encourage you to read through it. Some of the extra details are the other tribes who don't come. So Zebulun and Naphtali, great, you sent your soldiers to help us defeat the uh, Canaanites. But the tribes who thought about it, you know, they get a really bad rap. So Reuben, Gan, Gad, Dan, Asher, the city of Meroz, they all get scathing reports in this song. Go Zebulun and Naphtali, down with those chicken tribes who wouldn't come help out. Um, so that detail just comes from chapter 5. That's not coming from anywhere mysterious, just the next chapter. Uh, but nonetheless, <coughs> Sisera hears that they've gathered at Mount Tabor, and he brings all his men, uh, his 900 war chariots as well, down to these Kishon river flats below Mount Tabor. 
Now, uh, I don't know if they, we've got any war experts when it comes to chariots here. Hands up if you're an expert in chariot warfare. No, well, it's pretty basic. I can give you a crash course. If you've got a chariot, what you don't want is trees and hills. Um, you want flat, smooth ground and no trees. So your dream uh, battleground is a river flat. Uh, no trees, no hills, nice and level. You think, okay, that is a good staging ground to slaughter the enemy uh, if you've got an army of trapped chariots. Uh, which I would think if you're facing an army of chariots would make you say, let's not fight on the river flats. But that's exactly where God leads Sisera and his army, to the Kishon River Flats at the base of Mount Tamar. He, he said earlier on the chapter, that's where I'm going to lure them. That's where I want this to happen. Uh, and so, and that's what happens. But, but it was all part of God's plan because we learn in chapter 5, if you read it, that God sent a storm. Uh, so you read through it and you think, well, how did God defeat this army? Well, the River Flats are thinking, great, great standing ground. God obviously sent a big thunderstorm in a hurry. Um, now, it's not quite clear whether he sent a flash flood because it was pretty low-lying uh, and they actually washed the army away or whether the storm just made the ground boggy. And again, no chariot expert, but you've got chariots with lots of iron on them. They're heavy. They get bogged easily and boggy ground is not your friend. But either way, God sent this storm. He nullified the war chariots and the Israelite army ran down the Mount Tabor and finished the job. Well, well, they almost finished the job because Sisera, he flees on foot. Uh, he runs. His army's been defeated. Nowhere to go. There's obviously not even horses he can take and ride away because he has to run. And he stumbles on the tent of Heba the Kenite, which is not far from the battleground. It's just up there, they told us, near Kadesh. Um, so his army run the other way, back towards Hagoyim, uh, and they get defeated up there, and he sort of obviously takes a back road and runs the opposite direction to try and escape and finds uh, this tent. And because, we read, Heba had, <coughs> Heba had the king of the Canaanites have an alliance, Sisera thinks, fantastic, uh, finally a friendly face, I'm going to hide here. And he does seem to get a friendly welcome, doesn't he? Uh, Jael, Heba's wife, she welcomes him in, covers him with that blanket, agrees, uh, agrees to lie to whoever comes, no, no, there's no one here, uh, and soothes him into an exhausted sleep with a cup of milk. And that's celebrated in the song. Uh, and then you just get this just huge, well, I think it's a bit of a surprise, bam, you know, tent peg to the temple. What a way to die uh, with a tent peg. And, you know, this lady, they, they're actually a nomadic tribe, so I reckon she's had a lot of practice with tent pegs. Uh, it might have been just what lay, lay at hand, but maybe she thought, yeah, I'm pretty good with a tent peg. But this is a risky move for her. Uh, Sisera, he's a, he's a warlord. He's leading an army. He's a big, powerful guy who's only got to that place because he's the best warrior. You, you don't want to miss. You don't want to fumble or botch this job because uh, she would have been done. But then Barak shows up at that very moment and Jael, you can sort of picture her, she meekly comes out, oh, come in, come in, and I'll show you the man you're looking for. And the gruesome detail there, staked through the head to the ground, is Sisera, uh, which is the beginning of the end for Jabin. You know, the king of the Canaanites, he's lost his army, he loses his power, and eventually he's overthrown. Now, the only extra character we got there is Heba and Jael, the Kenites. <clears throat> Who are these guys? Well, um, 
Jael, the, or Heber the Kenite, they're related to Moses, uh, Moses' family, uh, his in-laws. Um, so if you've read Exodus, uh, you might remember that when Moses ran away from Egypt, he spent some time off in Midian where he married a lovely young Midianite woman uh, and, and her dad uh, actually helped him out quite a bit. Now, they came along in, in, the time of the, um, in the time of the Exodus when they were wandering through the wilderness and eventually uh, Moses and the other Israelites convinced Moses' brother-in-law, this lady's brother, to join in with them. Uh, we get that in, in Numbers 10. So uh, the Midianites and Kenites, sort of the words are used interchangeably. And that just takes a word search to check out what's going on there. Said, so come along with us. You can have a part in us. You'll be with us. We'll share our blessings with you. And, and that's kind of what happened. Uh, but they didn't get uh, their own allotment of land. Um, so they, they, these Kenites, they weren't really Israelites. They didn't share Abraham's blood. But they also certainly weren't Canaanites. Um, they, they, they would have been rejected kind of by everyone. The Israelites would go, oh, you're not really with us. You don't have a part in this land. And the Canaanites, the natives of the land, well, you came in with the Israelites to displace us. So can you see how this tribe would have been really on the outer? Um, they're not really accepted by anyone. And what's more, Heber, I don't know what's happened, but he's had an argument with his family and they've separated from their tribe. So already your tribe's on an outer, and then you have an argument with your family, so you've got to leave the rest of the tribe. And here's Jael, the wife of an outcast of the outcasts, parked near a battleground where a huge battle is going on. Uh, can you think of someone more vulnerable or outsider or un unusual that God might use uh, to be his hero? So that's, that's what's going on there. Uh, it's a very uh, bold plan for her, as I said. Uh, you can you imagine botching that job and having sort of a warlord with a headache wake up? You know, you're not going to survive that. And if you were feeling sorry for Sisera, maybe a little bit of honour popped up. You're like, oh, you know, uh, warlords should be stabbed in the, in the front, not the back. You know, you think, oh, that's, that's not the right way to do it. If you're going to kill someone, you do it to their face, not while they're sleeping. Well, I, I just want to remind us, who Sisera was. We've already been told he was cruelly oppressing the Israelites for 20 years. Uh, but in Judges 5, we actually find out that if he hadn't been nailed to the ground by jail, uh, he would have been off plundering the Israelites and explicitly raping the Israelite women. That's what, that's what the song says. If he wasn't here dead, he would be off plundering and a woman or two for every man just taking their plunder. So that's the kind of guy Sisera is. So I hope that's making you go, okay, he's not an innocent that got snuck on, up on. Uh, he deserved this. This was terrible. Um, so hopefully uh, you've seen, oh, wow, there are so many details in this passage that we can tease out. Um, it's not difficult to do it. It's not some magic. It just takes a little bit of work, some careful reading. But now it's time. Uh, we've had our closer look. Uh, and now we just need to quickly do those steps um, that are often forgotten. Because usually, uh, or often, what we can do is jump straight to us. You'll read a passage like this and you'll think, oh, what is this saying to me? How can I be like the people in this passage? You might say things like, be bold, take decisive action, and you will prevail, just like JL. You know, I read it and I thought, oh, maybe I should get a, like, a little tent peg tattoo or something. You know, oh, yeah, how good's that? Straight to me. But instead of doing that, 
First of all, we need to ask, well, what would this have meant for the original audience? And for that, we've got to think, well, who was this written to? Now, again, a lot of your study Bibles are going to have a little bit of info at the front. They're often helpful, and they'll give you references. Uh, but you can find this even just from reading through the book of Judges. This book, um, it doesn't tell us who wrote it or when, but we have clues. And some of the strongest clues are right in the end of the book, where the, the last few chapters you get this phrase that comes up again and again, in those days Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit, again and again and again. So, so that makes us pretty sure this was written in a time when Israel did have a king and not everyone did as they saw fit because we have a king who now guides us in how to honour God and how to live moral and godly and upright lives. Um, so this is almost certainly uh, written in the time of the monarchy, probably David, looking back into Israel's dark ages when Israel had no king to lead them. And, and it's designed to be read then in the monarchy and later on for Israel as they continued to await their promised saviour. And, and we see, so for this, this original audience, is the Israelite nation uh, who've at least had some kings um, and, and they would have noticed a whole bunch of things in here. They would have noticed uh, what's going on with these women saviours, the unexpected saviours. They would have seen the cycle of oppression and release, and they would have seen God's role to save despite all odds, despite the iron chariots, God can save his people with a tent peg. Uh, and, and see, in the Israelite history, if you read through the rest of the Old Testament, Israel, from Judges to Jesus, spend most of their time oppressed. They spend more time kind of under Sisera than they do under Deborah, if you like. They're more time under, under the Romans or the Babylonians or the Persians um, or the Greeks, more time oppressed than they do uh, in, in victory, I guess. And often they had surprising saviours. Even King David, he was the youngest son, the shepherd boy, not the big tall one that you'd think would be the king. And so this account, it must have been a great source of hope for the Israelites and confidence for this faithful Israelite who's awaiting salvation, who are oppressed, whether it's by the Babylonians or the Medes or whoever it is, but also a challenge and encouragement to each one of them personally that they too, even though they might have felt isolated or an unlikely saviour, um, they might have been encouraged to think, yeah, maybe God could use me too. I wonder if Daniel had read this growing up and thought, oh, well, I'm, a, I'm an exile in Babylon. How on earth could God ever use me? And he thinks, well... He did use a Kenite with a tent peg. Maybe he could use me. Um, and if they were reading this passage carefully, it would have shaken their expectations about what their ultimate saviour would look like. Because there are promises right through the Old Testament that God is sending a saviour to finally and ultimately send, save his people. And if they read stories like this enough, they would have gone, hmm, maybe we shouldn't expect the mighty warrior. Maybe we should expect an unorthodox saviour. And that's where we can start to move into our next step to understand this, which is how do we read this through Jesus? Because what we can't do, if you're a Christian, uh, you can't read the Old Testament as if we were Jewish, because we're not Jewish. Jesus has come. We have more information. The fulfilment of the Old Testament has arrived. Uh, and, and while Jesus was here in the flesh... He showed us that the Old Testament was all ultimately pointing to him. Uh, he didn't explain all of it, but he told his disciples in Luke 24, he began with Moses and the prophets and he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. 
Uh, Jesus opened their eyes. He showed them, yeah, this is all pointing to me. So we need to read the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament. Uh, see, the Old Testament records the old covenant, the, the old promises God had with his people. Um, and, and we've got this change in the New Testament, the new covenant, a different way that God relates to his people. And some things carry on, some things are different. Uh, many things are completed or finished in Jesus. Uh, now, some people will say, look, we see the New Testament authors, we see them interpreting the Old Testament in pretty weird and wonderful ways. Sometimes you'll read something in the New Testament and think, wow, how did Paul get that from that Old Testament passage? And then they might say, well, that's an example that we too as Christians, I'm a Christian, I'm full of the Holy Spirit, I can interpret the Old Testament however I want because that's the way Paul does it. But that's not the way Jesus set it up. See, Jesus deliberately chose and used apostles, uh, these authorised, specially inspired representatives of him to do that for us. The apostles were the ones who interpreted the Old Testament and recorded it so that we would know how to interpret it. Uh, see, that is <clears throat> what I say, or any other Christian says, what I say has a completely different weight to what Peter, Paul or John or James say in their letters in the New Testament. Now, hopefully, I'm going to give you good advice. Hopefully, I'm going to interpret the Old Testament well. But I'm not infallible. And no other Christian uh, has the kind of weight that these New Testament apostles do. So, when we're coming to the Old Testament, we always need to go to the New Testament to see what it says. Uh, often, the New Testament is really explicit about the change. Uh, take food laws, for example. There's a whole bunch in the Old Testament. You might read them and think, well, what am I meant to do? Am I allowed to eat camels or not? Have you thought that and then gone back to the Old Testament? Well, it's really explicit in the New Testament. Here's just one place, Mark 7. Uh, for it, food, doesn't go into their heart, their stomach, and then out of the body. little quiet mention of the toilet. Uh, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. You can't get more explicit or simple than that. So if you're looking in the Old Testament without letting the New Testament interpret it, when you're trying to work out what's for dinner, you're barking up the wrong tree. Uh, you read the Old Testament and then read the New and it'll show you. Uh, now one that maybe isn't quite as cut and dried as the food laws is women in leadership. And I can hear you all going, oh, what's he going to say about this? <clears throat> well, this is a massive topic. Uh, come and see me. It might be sensitive for you. You might just be interested uh, but it does come up here. We'll just touch on it here. And we'll touch on it because it comes up in the passage, doesn't it? You can't read Judges 4 and think, whoa, what is this saying about women leading God's people? Now, we might think, look at Deborah and think, ha, huh, women can lead in any role in God's people because she is a prophet, she is a judge, she's the deliberator of their, uh, their arguments. Fantastic, case closed. But if we're looking in Judges 4 and failing to search out what the New Testament says on this topic, we're not going to land where Jesus lands on this. Uh, well, let's have a very quick look at what the New Testament says. I won't go to all the passages. But when the New Testament went, mentions women, uh, the New Testament mentions women prophetesses, women deacons, women leaders, women influencers, women disciplers, uh, women funding the mission. They actually get... Uh, referenced as the ones who are generously funding Jesus' uh, ministry, more than men, interestingly, and they're all celebrated and encouraged. See, our culture thinks that we, the Bible doesn't have much good to say about what women can do. This is huge and explicit. 
Uh, but the New Testament <clears throat> also indicates really strongly that the role of elder overseer and the task of preaching is to be restricted to men who meet a whole bunch of other qualifications. So it's not just any man, might I say. So I say, oh, well, if you're a guy, you qualify. No way. Uh, there are a whole bunch of other restrictions which I am working really hard to live up to. Um, and, and again, this is a way bigger topic. And if this is an issue for you, come chat to me. But the point I'm making is that in every Old Testament passage, we need to read it through Jesus. You can't just take it and read it as if you were Jewish, unless you are actually Jewish and deny Jesus the Messiah, then go for it. But if, if you're a Christian, or if you recognise the New Testament, we've got to read the New Testament to understand what this passage means for God's people in Christ. Uh, now, there are lots of other themes in this chapter to pick up, but the other big one that I just want to flag today is that we see God saving through apparent weakness or foolishness. And that's really clear in this passage, isn't it? Because in that culture, you've got a woman leader, you think, okay, that's a weak nation. And in that cult, well, in any culture, can you imagine a plan to kill a warlord with a tent peg? Yeah, that's a great way to bring that nation down. You know, we'll have Jael do it with her tent peg. That's a foolish plan in the world's eyes. This is a weak nation in the world's eyes. Uh, it's very clear. Um, that's God's big plan. It seems ridiculous. But in this and other Old Testament salvation stories, God almost always is unorthodox in the way he saves. You just read through them and you think, okay, how is this unconventional? How is this surprising? How is this unorthodox? And you'll find it again and again and again. And the New Testament picks this theme up and takes it all the way to Jesus. Uh, we'll just go to one passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'll pick it up there in verse 20. Uh, where is the wise person, Paul writes? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher in this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who God have called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is stronger than human strength. See, God doesn't use the storybook heroes to save his people. He, he, he doesn't pick the one that you think is going to be. He doesn't use the mighty in the world's eyes, but he uses the weak in the world's eyes. He uses the outcast in the world's eyes. He uses the unexpected in the world's eyes. And in Judges... Against overwhelming odds, you know, iron-fitted chariots, when you've got an army of infantry and they've got tanks, against those odds, God saves. But just like all the stories in Judges, uh, God saves them and they still need saving, don't they? Because as soon as Deborah dies, they run back to their sin. Their biggest problem was their sinful hearts. And it's the same for us. See, our overwhelming odds aren't out there. Our overwhelming odds, it's not the government, it's not some enemy out there who's going to squash us. Even in other nations where there is uh, real and fierce opposition to Christianity, their biggest obstacle is not out there. The biggest obstacle is always in here. It's always our rebellious hearts. And God's salvation for us, the cross, it looks weak and foolish and unorthodox. Now, what a plan. I'm going to come and die to save people who've already proven that they don't deserve to be saved. 
That, that, is, that is a foolish plan. But that's what God does. That's just what Jesus does. Even the apostle Peter, he struggled to accept that, didn't he? When he first heard that Jesus was going to die on the cross, he said, no, don't do it. That's a silly idea. Jesus offering himself on the cross to take the penalty for our sins is way more unorthodox than a woman with a tent peg. You know, Jael looks like a, just an orthodox hero compared to the way Jesus saves on the cross. But though what the world's, through what the world sees as foolish, God wins this greatest victory. And the salvation he brings, it doesn't just last a human lifetime. It doesn't last 10 or 20 or even 40 years. It lasts forever. So we have looked close, we've dug in. We've had a quick look at what the original audience said, uh, saw, what it meant for them. We've thought, well, what does this mean for us through Jesus? And now, finally, you can say, well, what does this mean for us? Um, <clears throat> and it might seem foolish to the world, but the first thing this means for us is run to the cross of Jesus. Run to the cross of Jesus. Just a couple of verses before that we read before. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Uh, if you haven't run to Jesus to deal with your sin... I want you to stop thinking of any other application. It's no point trying to be a better person. It's no point trying to be brave. It's no point trying to, trying to do good. None of that will help you at all if you haven't run to the cross and found forgiveness of your sins. It, it might help you in this life for 10 or 20 or 40 years. It might help improve your life to be a better person. But it won't help you eternally. We must get this sorted first. And once you've done that, if you've done that, we should also take encouragement to these chapters that God chooses and works through people who are seen as unusual or weak. If you've already found forgiveness in Jesus, it's important that we note that God has surprising tools. Um, Deborah and Jael, it's a, it's a big surprise. Actually, I haven't got the reference here, but I'll just read it. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1.26. I don't think it's there in a couple of bits, is it, Rob? Oh, no, there it is. 1 Corinthians 1.26, uh, Paul writes on, so this is after he's talking about the foolishness of the cross. Brothers and sisters, he's talking to Christians, think of what you were when you were called. Now, this isn't very flattering. Not many of you were wise by human standards, sorry. Uh, not many of you were influential. Not many were noble birth. But God chose the foolish things, and he's pointing at his audience here. God chose the foolishness of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It's because of him that you're in Christ Jesus who has become for us the wisdom of God. That is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And haven't we seen that from this? Deborah and Jael, culturally, they can't do it. They're outcasts. They're on the edge. Well, what, what about Barak? You know, I was a little bit nervous using Barak as an uh, example here because he's a bit of a wuss, isn't he? Uh, Deborah's bold. She's strong. She's brave. She trusts God. And Barak says, I'll only go if you come with me, Deborah. Uh, <clears throat> but I actually, when I think about it, I kind of resonate with Barak uh, because he, he, he failed. He failed to do what was right. He failed to trust God. And there have been many times in my life as I look back, when I look back and I say, I failed there. 
I've got friends and family members who I didn't witness to as I should have. I've got opportunities I didn't take because I was a bit of a chicken, because I was scared of what would happen. There's lots of failures in my story, and, and I suspect as you look back, you've got regrets and failures too, and you think, oh, maybe you think I resonate with Barak too. But did God chuck him out? Did God say, okay, you didn't listen to me, you didn't trust me, you wanted Deborah to come along? No, he said, I'm still going to use you, Barak. I'm still going to use you with just 10,000 measly foot soldiers to wipe out the might of King Jabin. Now, this, this is encouragement. If you've got failures in your past like I do, if you think, oh, I'm a bit of a dud, I've stuffed this up a few times, you're God's specialty. <laughs> he loves using people like us to get his jobs done. But don't seek to do it on your own. Don't think, oh, well, I've just got to get stronger and then I can do it. We've got to do it in God's strength. Trusting his plan, his promises. Even if you don't understand them, like Barak. Even when the world thinks that you're odd like Deborah. Even if you're going to risk everything to do it like Jael. To trust him. This mighty salvation in the unorthodox way of Jesus. God does this through his people too. Uh, now we're going to sing, the band's going to come on up. Uh, because chapter 5 is a song. We're not going to sing chapter 5 of Judges. Uh, but chapter 5, if you read it, it celebrates the unorthodox way God saves. It celebrates the women. It celebrates jail. It celebrates the, the two tribes who came and talks about the five who didn't. And the song we're going to sing uh, is, is a great one that actually celebrates the cross. Uh, it talks about the man of sorrows, the despised, the rejected, the weak in the world's eyes. Uh, there's a good reason that Christians have crosses rather than sort of battle axes. Because we celebrate weakness, the apparent weakness of the world, but really strength in God. So come on up and let's uh, sing this song. Thanks, guys. Uh, thanks for that, guys. Uh, Rob's going to come around with the mic, so if you've got a question about the passage, uh, stick your hand up. We'll get a microphone to you. Alan. Okay. Uh, is the fact that Deborah was the judge itself uh, a, a punishment for Israel? Oh, is the fact that they got a lady judge punishment. Uh, good question, given the way the nations would have seen that. I don't think so. I think it was God's, in the way judges is presented, all the judges are presented as God's gracious blessings on a nation who don't really deserve it. But um, yeah, it's good to ask those questions. I don't think so in the way it's presented. But thanks, Alan. Oh, hang on, George. Saved by the bell. Hang on, we'll get your microphone, George. Well, how does this relate to Paul's opinion about women? You know, you've got judges, but how, how he lines up who and leadership. Yeah, thanks, thanks uh, for that, George. Yeah, as I said, we've got to go to the New Testament. Uh, I, you, you might have missed it in there. I had a phrase that says the, the New Testament is pretty clear that the role of elder and the job of preaching teaching is restricted to men with suitable qualifications which I would say is a summary very quick summary of Paul's um, teaching on that if you want to follow that up uh, I think 1 Timothy 2 and 3 chapters 2 and 3 uh, it's it's really actually all attached really interesting like the job of teaching is actually attached to the role of elder it's all in the same uh, same role uh, but it's explicit that women can be deacons, saying likewise the women, uh, but it's not explicit. It's, it's very obviously left out 
of the role of elder, uh, that they can be women. Um, so that's a, that's a tricky one. There's a lot of debate about it. Um, I tend to look, especially the flow of the New Testament, and there's some pretty explicit teaching on it. Uh, I think it's a pretty clear one, um, but it's, uh, it's certainly something that has been debated for a long time and in, with great passion, might you say. Again, come chat to me about it. Okay, thanks, Rob. <laughs>